Welcome to A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, Rector of Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California, and your host. In the second episode in our forum series, Back to Basics, we grab a glimpse into the evolution of early Christianity towards a Catholic faith, the political forces and debates that shaped our early theology and led ultimately to one of the cornerstones of our tradition, the Nicene Creed. It's great to see you here. I'm going to start with a review of uh, some of what we covered last week just to, just to get us back into the game. Um, but I'm also going to start with a caveat, and that is that a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing especially in the hands of a parish priest like me. So by way of sort of an upfront apology to my professors and to people who teach this for a living, this is going to be a very perfunctory look at early church history. Um, My professor at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific in early church history was Rebecca Lyman, and she was loved by our whole class and many classes that came before us and after us. Um, But she always talked about how teaching early church history to seminarians was sort of like doing the uh, I-80 tour of the Midwest. I don't know if you've ever driven across the Midwest on either I-80 or I-70. You you sort of pass through things. You don't actually get to see them in detail and get to really know them well. So if if teaching seminarians for her was like the I-80 tour of early church history, this is going to be sort of like the flyover looking down at the mountains and the plains and the valleys and the cities um, that we always fly over when we're going coast to coast or, or to uh, between major, major parts of our country. Um, early Christianity, I was saying last week, um, was marked by a few things. Um, it was very diverse. It was very local, first of all. But something I want to emphasize this week, it was also, it was also really rooted in... in the charismatic. In other words, people looked to inspirational, spirit-filled leaders. And that manifested in a number of ways. First of all, itinerant prophets were were popular. And uh, what would happen, particularly in the very early church, and we see this in the letters of Paul, um, itinerant teachers like Paul would come into cities in the ancient Roman world um, which were easily accessed because, as I said in my sermon today, there was the Pax Romana, and trade was strong, and the roads were reasonably peaceful in the first century. And um, they would enter sometimes, uh, we think, synagogues where there were Gentiles who, had, who were adjoined to the synagogue community, although they were not Jews themselves, and they would start to build or plant little Christian communities there, um, Paul, we understand, would sit and he would make awnings for businesses and get acquainted with the business community in cities like Corinth or Philippi or Thessalonica. And he would, he would um, then develop these deep friendships and relationships and start to build little Christian communities that were probably no larger than this gathering here. I mean, they, were, they, were, they would be small. And... Um, they were also marked, we know, with glossolalia, which is a fancy term for speaking in tongues. How do we know this? Paul writes about this in his letters. So in, in some ways, the very early church to us might have looked kind of Pentecostal in its notion, less organized, certainly not formally institutionalized like we have now. 
course, the two things that we know are going on in the early church are absolutely key, and that is baptism. Um, again, this is a baptistry that's a converted, probably a converted bath in someone's home. And table fellowship. Um, this is a later depiction of the agape meal. Um, and some sort of ritualized form of what we would now call Eucharist or communion, either in conjunction with the, the meals that they would hold together um, or separate from that. And the early Christians were starting to meet on Sunday mornings, which made them distinctive, and they were markedly conservative even by the standards of the surrounding Um, sort of overall Roman culture, which tended towards conservatism. Conservatism in the sense that family was very important in the ancient Roman world. The paterfamilias, the the father figure of the family, was central to the life of the household. And people based their lives around that and blood ties and family ties. Christians even went a step further and they were very conservative about sexual mores than the much more conservative than the prevailing Roman culture. I mean, what men could get up to in the prevailing Roman society, we would find distasteful today, in short. Um, And even to the point that some of these early Christian communities would eschew marriage, and we have accounts of women who were baptized and they would break off engagements, which would get them in no end of trouble, both with, of course, (laughs) the the potential groom and his family, but with their own paterfamilias, right? And, and the sense was that through baptism, they were adopting a new paterfamilias, and the patriarch was Jesus. And so they were a radical group, and they were very much on the margins of society. And so it's important to understand that that's a setup for them for later persecutions, but it also means that these were, these, were, these were groups that had a vision that was very counter to the prevailing culture. And more than that, and I think a key thing to remember is that they believed, at least in the very early generations, that Jesus was coming back imminently, which set us up in a couple of ways as later Christians. First of all, it meant that as Paul wrote to some of the communities, you don't have to change things. Jesus is going to take care of that when he comes, all right? Um, But it also meant that they were very much distinct from the world, and there was a sense of holiness in that level of distinction. And as we'll see, that, that causes trouble for them. So questions for the early Christians, just to revisit. Are we Jewish? Are we Jewish? We see this depicted in Scripture, this question. Does it matter that we attend to all of the laws that the Jewish tradition has passed on to us? Should men be circumcised before they're baptized? Big question in the early church. Okay. Can Gentiles then be Christian, which is the other side of this coin? Right? How do we relate to Scripture? And by Scripture, I don't mean the Gospels. They hadn't been written yet. And I don't mean the letters of Paul. Letters of Paul were just that. They were letters that were written to specific communities, and maybe they were being copied and shared elsewhere a little bit. But when scripture was thought of in these early Christian communities, they were thinking of what we now call the Jewish Tanakh, 
or the body of Jewish scripture, which included the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the prophetic texts, maybe some versions of the later wisdom texts that we have, the Chronicles and the Book of Kings. How does Jesus' story relate to that? It was a big question for these early Christian communities. And then finally, beginning around the year 60 AD, the first of a series of episodic persecutions began for the early Christian community. First one began under Nero. And so questions were raised, how do we remain faithful this way? And as we'll discover, the answers to that question, depending on where you fell, would determine whether you were in or out later on. And um, so these are, these are profound for future history of the church. And then, of course, that sense of the imminence of Jesus' return, how do we prepare for the end times? So you see Paul addressing these questions, right? Is it okay to get married? Paul said, well, I guess if you have to, basically. It's kind of a reluctance permission. But he says, I prefer you stay unmarried if you're still unmarried, so that you can attend to what the call of Jesus, what the call of Christ is in your life. Put that first and foremost. If you're married, you have to think about the needs of your husband or your wife. You have to think about possibly family and children and all those things. And I, I'd spare you that because Jesus is coming, right? Okay. Any questions about that? Makes sense, right? How do they talk? No, first question. Uh, in, in this sense, are they talking about Jewish religion or Jewish as a genetic uh, continuance? So to, so to rephrase that, are they talking about Jewish as a religion or Jewish as a people, kind of a cultural inheritance and an ethnic group? That distinction is actually a little bit of an anachronism. Okay? And what I mean by that is that's a distinction that we make in the 21st century, but that was probably not made in, in the first century as much. People were identified by the, not just the faith that they had grown up in, but the culture they had grown up in and the geographic location that they had grown up in. So the sense of connection was about kin. What's your bloodline? And connected with that was the whole constellation of things that we now might separate in a, in a world of greater tolerance. You know, religious traditions came with that. Cultural traditions came with that. What we eat, how we eat, who we eat with, all of those things had to do with where you were born, who your family was, and what kind of connections or community you built. It's, in other words, it's a much more complicated picture. So the level of what does it mean to be Jewish is a very complicated question for these early Christian communities because they're rooted in at least being close to the local synagogues if not part of the local synagogues. In fact, we have a sense that some of these early Christian communities were going to Sabbath services and were regular members of the local synagogue community. And then they were gathering on Sundays to remember the resurrection and Christ. And so identity is tricky there. And it's only later in the first century that we start to see breaks 
and that has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and a consolidation of Judaism outside of the temple apparatus. And when that occurs, there's a conflict. And that's what we see depicted at some level in the Gospels and also in, in sort of third-party sources. What language were they speaking at that time? So the, the, predominant, language, the predominant language would have probably been street Greek, which was the predominant language throughout the, throughout the Roman Empire of the day. And did the Jewish people call themselves Jewish? That's a very good question, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that, right? Um, this actually gets to, to very tricky questions like how we translate particular words, especially in John's Gospel. Um, I've actually done some writing and research about this because it's what sets us up um, when we do the Passion Narratives during Holy Week to hear things in John's Gospel that sound very anti-Semitic to our ears, but in fact may not have been intended that way. And that is because there's this, there's this word in the Greek Eudaios, which can be translated as Judean, that is people from what was largely the southern kingdom in ancient Israel, and probably people who were centered around the temple in the first century, prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Um, it can also mean, in the context of the broader Roman Empire, and this is how Luke uses it, as people who have connection historically and through their families with the ancient Israelites. But these would be Jews, as we would call them, living in diaspora, outside of what we now call the Holy Land. Okay? It can also mean the people of the tribe of Judah, which is a very narrow group of ancient Israelites. This is, in fact, how it's translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the book of the prophet Jeremiah, they mention, you know, the people of Judah. So, and then there's John, who uses it in almost a technical and very broad, kind of sweeping polemic sense. And in some places he's talking about the religious authorities in Jerusalem. At other times he's talking about Judeans sort of writ large over and against the Galileans to the north. And this goes back to the point I was making to Bill earlier. Jesus was Galilean, and at the time of Jesus, the kingdom had been split into two separate Roman provinces. Galilee was one province, Judea was another. So to say Eudaios, in the context of the you know, mid-first century, was to talk about people from Judea. They may be Jews, that we would, as we would call them, um, and not Galileans, who were also Jews, by the way, as we would call them. You see the confusion? Yeah, it's very complicated. So this identity of being Jewish is complicated also for the early Christians. And another question I had, but I think you answered, is why did the Christians decide to celebrate or meet on Sundays? And was that because the Jewish people were meeting on Saturdays? No, it had to do, we think, it had to do with the tradition that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Yeah. There may, be, there may be other 
reasons for that, but that seems to be the primary one as far as we can gather. David. Um, in this early Christian community, as the decades went by and Jesus didn't come again, did they have a crisis of faith in general, or how did they cope with that? It's a very good question, and we think they probably did. <laughs> I mean, I would, wouldn't you? Um, what, we, what we see more of... Um, a clearer answer is that we see, we see then the beginnings of the establishment of institution and the setting up of communities and leadership to perpetuate the tradition and pass it on to subsequent generations. That's what we see. And the easiest way to see that, just keeping to the confines of our canon of scripture, is to look at the later letters that are attributed to Paul and you see the establishment of clerical orders in the communities. You see rules starting to be laid down about how people should behave and how should they shouldn't behave. This was raised, you know, last time we met. It, there's a problem, for instance, with women speaking publicly in a conservative patriarchal context. And this is obviously a question that someone who thinks Jesus is coming tomorrow, it would not be quite as prominent, right? So... That gives you a taste of how we know. So we get into the questions for later Christians. This is a great segue into that. Later Christians are starting to build up an inheritance, right? They've had various teachers come through, various prophets. They have a set of stories about Jesus. They have a set of traditions that they've established locally. And because the empire is the way the empire is, which is a good thing, they, they learn about other Christian communities, or they may have had contact with other Christian communities, and they're doing things differently. So the question arises, who's right? Who's right? So which teachings and set of practices and everything that comes with that do we follow? Then we get to how do we structure the church for something that's going to live beyond us? Because for some reason, Jesus isn't coming back as quickly as we thought he might. And if you look closely at the language of the Gospels, which are written in the second half of the first century, you see a little bit of wrestling going on, even within those narratives, about what this means. You know, for instance, there's, there's a question when the disciples ask Jesus in one of the Gospel texts, you know, when are you coming back? And Jesus' answer to that isn't, well... You know, five o'clock next Friday. But it's ambiguous. You know, this is not for you to know. And he even implies it's not for me to know either. It's up to the Father. And later writers, including to some degree Paul, are wrestling with this and starting to think, well, maybe, maybe the reason Jesus isn't coming back quite so quickly is because he's waiting for the gospel to spread a little bit further. And you start to see sort of lemonade being made out of lemons, right? Oh, this is opportunity for us to share the good news. And maybe what God's waiting for is for us to get to work, you know? We shouldn't look busy because Jesus is coming back tomorrow. We should look busy because we have a message to share and God is waiting for us to share that. 
how to settle disagreements. Anytime you establish an institution and you have a set of teachings, inevitably disagreements are going to come up. We see this in Paul's letters to the Galatians and the Corinthians, the Philippians, the Thessalonicans. You know. Paul is not writing in a vacuum. We don't hear the other side of the conversation, but we get the sense these are communities, again, maybe no larger than this gathering here, who are in disagreement within each other. How do they remain together in community, hold those disagreements? How do they settle them, resolve them? Should they settle them? What are things that are really substantive disagreements? And what are things that are just kind of sideshows? How do we reintegrate apostates? Big problem once the persecutions begin. You know? What about my sister in Christ who left the church because she was so scared when the Roman authorities came through and started picking people off and throwing them to the lions? And now she's back in community, now that Nero has passed on into whatever, and we have a new emperor, and he's a little bit more patient with us as Christians. What's her life like compared with mine? This is going to become a huge question that leads up to the Council of Nicaea in a few centuries. How do we define and unify the heart of our faith? What is the heart of our faith? Is it enough to say, I believe in Jesus? Do we have to have practices that go with that, that are particular? Do we have to have a particular understanding of Scripture that goes with that? How specific does that need to be? And the answer to this question is remarkably wide and diverse. Even within a community this size, people would have had a wide divergence of answers to that in many places. And ultimately, how do we relate to civil and political authorities? Even the gospel authors themselves, we get the sense, are starting to wrestle with this question. How do we make an excuse for this to the wider Gentile world? And to understand that, it's helpful to know that Roman society valued things that were old. You know? The Jews, not to put too fine a point on it, from the perspective of the Romans, were a pain in the ass. Okay? And what I mean by that is they were monotheists, they were stubborn about it, and they didn't want Romans importing their gods or gods from other cultures into their traditional life. That got the Romans dander up. But what the Jewish tradition did say is that we've got a deep tradition that goes back countless generations. And the Romans say, okay, we can live with that. You've got a pedigree, basically. And as long as the temple authorities were cooperating, the tribute was flowing out of ancient Israel we can live with, you know, the rough and tumble that you're a monotheistic group. All right, whatever. You get Yahweh, we get the tribute. Life goes on, basically. Okay? By the time we get to the end of the first century, the Romans have lost patience with ancient Judaism, largely because of uprisings. And um, as I said last week, the temple had been destroyed Jerusalem ultimately would be wiped off the face of the map as far as the Romans were concerned and replaced. And both the Christians and a consolidated form of Judaism that was starting to look more and more like 
the rabbinical Judaism that we're familiar with today, were having to make their own apologies, their own justifications to the wider Roman society. And what we see is that'll inspire some of the earliest theologians of the church to start mining the deeper tradition, particularly the Greek tradition, but also the scriptural tradition of Judaism, to build a justification for why we're Christian and why that's okay. We have a pedigree, and here it is. Okay. In the effort to consolidate the tradition and sort of unify things, you always have to think about, okay, what is right and what is wrong? So it's in the second century that we start to see the early church writers, we'll get into this in a little bit more detail in a minute, starting to think about what is the right opinion or teaching about Jesus and about the faith, what later becomes called orthodoxy. And there is increasingly a sense of discomfort with the diversity of opinions within the church and between local communities. Why? Well, first of all, the church is growing. And secondly, there's beginning to be a consolidation of power amongst the clergy. And thirdly, there are some crises of faith starting to brew in these communities as we get into the second century. And the biggest one of these we hear about from Irenaeus of Lyon, first of all, who was one of the great early teachers of the church and one of the founders of our theological tradition. And we'll talk about him a little bit more in a minute. We knew very little about Gnosticism in its own voice until the middle of the 20th century, which is very interesting. Like most things that were thought of as bad, Gnosticism, we, could, we only had understanding about it through the writings of Irenaeus and others who were condemning it in the second and third centuries. But because of the finding of the scrolls at Nag Hammadi in the middle of the 20th century, we actually had some first-hand accounts of what Gnosticism was about. And we learned a lot without the polemic that Irenaeus and others would put on it. Gnosticism is interesting because it makes sense in the world where, again, the Jewish traditions are colliding with Greek philosophy. And it really starts with the teachings of Plato. If you know anything about Platonic thought, and again, a little little bit of knowledge makes me dangerous on this, but Plato has this notion of the ideal that is unassailable to us. You can only sort of get a, a glimmer of it. And it is perfect and beyond our reach. And so the Platonic understanding of God is a God who is perfect and unassailable and beyond us. The God depicted in Scripture, that is the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, is a God who makes imperfect things, like the creation we see around us, who gets in squabbles with his own people, who is vengeful at times, who is a pain in the arse in other times, who seems very sort of earthy. 
And people who were really enamored of platonic thinking and this sort of notion of the ideal and the perfect really struggled with this. And so forms of Gnosticism probably appeared very organically throughout the churches around the Mediterranean. And it developed into a belief system that looks something like this. The God of what we now call the Old Testament was actually not the true God. Interesting notion. The God of Genesis was actually what Plato would call a demiurge. And the material world had been sort of put forth by this demiurge, this kind of half-god. And that Christ, who represents the true God, the God of wisdom, the God of the ideal, the God of the perfect, came to rescue us from the material world. Now, here's the great pastoral advantage in all of this. The Gnostics had a wonderful and fabulous explanation for suffering. Suffering is because the material world is imperfect. And our goal, our sort of destination, if you will, is to not only leave this mortal coil behind us, but to become free of the material world. And so what we have is a set of traditions, not a single tradition. You can't say Gnostic and sort of encompass it all. But a set of traditions that wanted to shed the material world and eschewed the material world in favor of the spiritual world which Christ was leading us to. And in this sense, Jesus is the true God come among us and he's sort of play acting, sort of puts on the material world. And that the way to attain to the spiritual world that is the ideal is through a knowledge kind of sense of how things really are and that we pass that on and share that within the community. Okay? Is this giving you kind of a picture of what Gnosticism is about? Okay? So this was declared by Irenaeus one of the great heresies. Kind of false opinions or false teachings of the day. And this is actually the, the invention. Orthodoxy and heresy are Christian inventions to deal with these controversies. The other thing to note about Gnosticism, which I think is very key because it still infects our thinking even today, is it was very dualistic. Matter, spirit. Light, dark. Another early heresy is Marcionism. And it was apparently a widespread Christian literalist interpretation of Paul and Hebrew scripture, the Tanakh, sometime in the second century. And it had kind of Gnostic-like strands. It rejected the creator God of Genesis, the God that Marcion deemed a, a God of judgment and vengeance, not a God we would want anyway. And instead put Christ at the center of things as the true God, And there was this sense, again, of spirit over flesh, and Jesus' sacrifice is the false creator God. Dermot McCulloch, to whom I um, owe a lot for this summary, um, talks about the difference between Gnosticism and Marcionism, was that Gnosticism was a very diverse set of beliefs and systems, 
to understand scripture and the tradition and the place of Christ in our lives. But Marcion was much more narrow and disciplined. Marcion actually handpicked letters of Paul and texts of Hebrew scripture to build basically his own Bible. The Bible was not established at this time in any universalizing sense. And so we can think about Gnosticism as sort of a wide diversity of beliefs, and Marcionism was a sort of a narrow, very disciplined understanding. The other thing I want to say about, about this, these systems is that we had a, a real bias in Christian tradition, probably um, we can hand some of the credit to Irenaeus and his polemic that you know, Gnostics were really bad characters. You know, they were up to all kinds of dissolute things, you know, getting up to all kinds of mischief, you know, sexual perversions, and they're like reptiles and animals and their behavior and all of this. Where, in fact, if we look at the Gnostic texts from Nag Hammadi and, and um, now some, some other sources and authorities, what we see is actually a highly disciplined and somewhat ascetic group. What we also know from some of the textual discoveries in the Near East in the 20th century is that there were other groups that were kind of like this in Judaism. One of them was the Essenes. I don't know if we can say they were Gnostics, but they were very ascetic in their approach to tradition. Another early heresy that we have is Montanism. A guy by the name of Montanus, right? Montanus from Phrygia in Asia Minor. He claimed the mantle of prophecy even had uh, a prophetess, a woman, doing prophecies, sort of his sidekick. And he declared he had a new prophecy for Christianity that the new Jerusalem that was seen in the book of Revelation was going to arrive, probably in Phrygia. That was where he's from, after all. And ultimately, the Montanists who followed him were exiled by the Bishop of Rome though they influenced the church in northern Africa, and they had a lingering influence well into the 6th century. It was not really a full-blown heresy, we might say. McCulloch argues that it was the first manifestation of a now millennia-old conflict in Christianity over authority. It goes back to the questions that were being raised around the turn of the century, turn of the, the first to second century, in a text called the Didache, one of the questions that Didache attempts to answer is, how do you know a real prophet from a false prophet? Right? Do they stay too long? Do they ask for too much money? <laughs> right? But of course, the other debate that's going on in the church, or the other tension, is that now that we've established institutions, what is the place of our institutional leadership over and against these itinerants who come through to teach? And as you see, the balance starts to swing very much in favor of the institutional leaders, right? Yeah. Joan. Were these three heretical groups started by specific people? Okay. So Gnosticism, no. Um, we don't have any strong sense that Gnosticism was started by an individual. Marcionism, yes. There's an individual named Marcion 
who seemed to be the founder of this particular set of beliefs. Montanus, again, was a real person. Came from Phrygia. He founded this. So some of these heresies are named after the people who first established them, and some of them are more general. That's why Gnosticism here is in a bigger font, for what it's worth. You know, there's text wizards among us. Because it's really a set of heresies, a really a set of perspectives, not a single one. Whereas Marcionism and Montanism, we have documented, were, were systems that were started by an individual practicing and teaching particular things. Finally, we have two systems that become important as in the lead-up to the Council at Nicaea, and they fall under the broad heading of monarchianism. Monarchian believing was not started by somebody named Monarch, <laughs> but is actually a set of beliefs that really are monotheistic. I mean, they actually make sense if you think about them. God is one. God is one. So how then do we explain in our scriptural tradition and in the tradition of the regular lives of Christians the place of Jesus and the place of the Holy Spirit? One way was what later became called the modalist form of monarchianism. The modalist form was that basically this is a play where there's one actor who's taking on multiple roles. So God is basically changing roles. Right now I'm God the Father, I'm creating things. Right now I'm God the Son, I'm saving the world, salvation. Right now I'm God the Spirit, I'm bringing gifts to the Christian community. And that life is being played out in this play. That's the modalist tradition. The other form of monarchianism was the adoptionist form. And adoptionism was that Jesus had been created just like you and me, ordinary guy, carpenter, Nazareth, you know the story. And that when he was baptized in the River Jordan and the Spirit descended upon him, he became adopted as God's son. So there is a sense of hierarchy in the divine order, for sure. But there's a sense that the divinity is attributed to Jesus. These are two modes of understanding in theology that would lose the argument. Because over and against them were very strong voices talking about the Trinity and that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were each persons. In other words, they were beings with their own integrity, and yet they were one and the same in one divinity. How do you explain that? Right? Can you explain that? Can you explain that? I can't explain it either exactly, but this is where the debate came down. Um, the adoptionist form of monarchianism was actually a, a, a progenitor to what would later become Arianism, which was central to the debates about who Jesus is when we get to the fourth century and Nicaea. So let's talk about these guys who are having these arguments, right? The marriage of Greek philosophy and the early Christian theology was accomplished by two prominent figures, three prominent figures, I should say, Justin Martyr of Rome, 
Tertullian, who was writing in northern Africa, Carthage, and Irenaeus, who was in the western part of the empire, in Lyon. And then their counterparts in the east were Clement and Origen of Alexandria. And Alexandria was one of the great centers of learning in the second and third century Roman Empire. Irenaeus of Lyon developed the word heresy over and against the Gnostics first. Um, it came from the Greek word hieresis, or a self-chosen opinion. It's basically a formal way of saying, well, that's your opinion, but that's not the truth. Or that's not the opinion of the church. And here's one of the problems Irenaeus may have had with Gnosticism. What happens to our Eucharistic traditions if we believe the material world is somehow less than holy? Just dwell on that for a minute. You don't have to answer the question, but do you start to see the problem? If you've inherited a tradition where we're calling bread and wine holy, and the Gnostics come along and say the material world is actually condemned, it's not the real creation that we want to inhabit. What does that say about our Eucharistic traditions? Justin of Rome was a witness to the faith and one of the first great apologists. He offered a wisdom he believed that came out of Christianity and was tied in with sort of Greek teaching and philosophy and understanding, again, to give it that pedigree. And he was the first to really talk deeply about the logos that I talked about last week, the word, particularly in the opening of the Gospel of John, this notion that somehow Jesus, the Christ, is the word that gives rise to all things. And so what Justin is really saying is that Christ and God, Jesus and God, are one. And what we would later call a high Christology, this notion that Christ is not just a person who came out of Nazareth, but Christ is a fundamental creative, not even impulse, but a person who helped create or through whom all of creation was made. That makes Christ real big, by the way, right? That's the notion. He was an early theological source on the Eucharist. But I think the tragedy we have to remember, and all of these figures have their flaws for sure, is that Justin was one of the early originators of Christian anti-Semitism. So you see a lot of anti-Jewish polemic in his writing. And again, that goes back to the deep conflicts that were going on. What is the future of Judaism going to be? And the consolidation going on on both sides in the face of persecution and the destruction of Jerusalem towards the end of the first century. Then we have Tertullian of Carthage. He was amongst the first theologians to argue not in Greek, but in Latin. All right? He was a maverick. And ultimately, he was a Montanist. Remember one of the heresies? He was concerned about the transmission of sin from parents to their children. And that would form the basis of 
another great figure from North Africa who would come along a few centuries later, Augustine of Hippo. Remember, Augustine was the one who wrote about original sin, this whole notion of the transmission, sort of the genetic transmission of sin from parents to children and across the generations. We owe that in large part to Tertullian's ideas. Clement of Alexandria was a great teacher there, and his successor, Origen. Both of these were writing at one of the great ancient centers of learning, as I said, and they put a heavy emphasis on knowledge, gnosis, but they were not Gnostics. They were deeply steeped in Greek philosophy, and they brought Platonic and Aristotelian thought heavily into conversation with emerging Christian theology. But unlike the Gnostics, Clement leaned heavily on the apostolic tradition, this notion that the tradition is being passed on from person to person across the generations, and we get the starting of what later became apostolic succession, which is this notion that we can trace our lineage all the way back to Jesus himself with the laying on of hands and the transmission of the Holy Spirit. It's a very material, very physical thing. So you can see why that didn't work in, in, in systems of Gnosticism. This was something different. Authority rested for him not only in scripture, but in what could be grasped through rational thinking. This is very important for the development of early theology. It'll be important to us as Anglicans much later on. His writings also heavily influenced later Catholic moral teaching. Origen succeeded him, and Origen did something remarkable which really helped us develop our modes of biblical interpretation. He brought the Tanakh into this allegorical universe where we could read passages of Jewish scripture and we could see if we not exactly squint the right way, but think about it the right way. We could see the actions of Jesus, the actions of Christ. And that sense of mining scripture for deep meaning was very important. We were already well into the debates of do we interpret scripture literally or do we interpret it metaphorically and allegorically? And Origen strongly leaned towards the latter. He said there are many layers of meaning in scripture, We can mine it for understanding who Jesus is more deeply and how Christ is acting in our lives even now. And he offered us one of the first great Christian commentaries on Scripture. Origen, unlike Irenaeus and Justin, stressed the universality of salvation. So going back to a question you raised, Joan, last week about who all's going to heaven and who's not, this is a very old question. And Irenaeus and Justin fell on one side of this and Origen fell on another side. Origen, we might say, had a very broad sense of salvation. God is working God's purpose out. Christ is in the business of saving all people, if not all of creation itself. Justin and Irenaeus were much more of the system 
that believe that only the holy people of God will be able to enter heaven. And that it is the home of saints, holy people. So you can see, even amongst these most orthodox of founders of our tradition, there was a lot of disagreement that would continue to haunt the Christian faith. All right. Pause for a breath there. Any questions? Joan. Where did Christ as the gatekeeper to God come into this? Only through me will you reach the Father. Right, so Christ as the gatekeeper? I don't have a quick, quick and easy answer to that, of course. Um, except that that's an image that's prevalent in the Gospel of John. And again, John's world is filled with polemic and divisions and distinctions. I think it is fair to say that all of these figures would have believed that Jesus was the way that Christ was the way to God. And they would have agreed with probably John's gospel in that. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Does that kind of get get out the question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these were Christians. And for Christians, what makes us distinctive is Christ comes first. Christ is our way to get to know God. All right, so... We're still dealing with a faith by the end of the second century and into the third century that is marginal. Again, it doesn't have the pedigree that the Romans would expect it to have, but the Romans are starting to take notice, and here's why. By the beginning of the third century and on to the early fourth century, became clear to the Roman authorities that Christianity was widespread. It was not a majority religion in the empire by any stretch of the imagination, but it had a network of well-established, visible communities spanning the length and breadth of the empire, unlike almost any other religious tradition or cult. It seemed to leap, going back to your point earlier, Bill, it seemed to leap these boundaries of nation, of kinship, of cultural practice, and even indigenous religious traditions. And it was drawing together people from a wide spectrum of socioeconomic status. Okay? And that kind of got the Romans' attention. Why? Well, they had their own crises, right? If you know anything about Roman history, you know conflict for the seat of the emperor was growing with time. There were increasing incursions from tribes outside of the empire into the boundaries of the empire, which was putting stress both economically and militarily on the empire. And so there was a real desire to start to find something that would keep the empire together, that would unify it, that would give it a rallying point. So in an anxious century of danger, military and territorial decline, 
efforts in the empire, particularly under the lineage of Emperor Septimus Severus, began to adopt monotheistic religions and adapt them to support efforts to maintain the empire. If you've got one god, we've got something to unify around, right? And some of those focuses were on sun deities, which were very ancient. Um, And there were probably other monotheistic systems that were tried out. However, and this became very important for the final phase in the lead-up to Nicaea, there was a reaction against this effort. And it occurred particularly under the reign of Diocletian. Okay. So late in the third century, Diocletian comes and he wants to reestablish ancient Roman forms of polytheism. He wants to return to the pure Rome, right? And it was under Diocletian that there was the persecution to end all persecutions for the Christian community. Shortly on the heels of the Diocletian persecution, Constantius, successor the first, died in Britain, and his son, Constantine, was named emperor. Here he is, nice depiction of him, right? In a series of critical battles to secure his rule, his soldiers bore the now widely recognized Christian mark Cairo on their shields. And, of course, there are a whole host of legends that rose up around this. Legend is that Constantine himself beheld a vision which promised that by the cross of Christ he would be victorious. And this is while he's standing on the threshold of Rome, ready to claim his rightful place as emperor. And because he was successful, his response was that he would open up imperial, financial, and political support for the Christian faith, and he declared an era of toleration for all faiths in the ancient empire. Ultimately, he would cement this literally with the establishment of a new capital in the east, Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, also known as Byzantium. Under Constantine, the city of Aelia Capitolina, which was the Roman city that replaced Jerusalem, was remined, if you will. And there are lots of legends around this too. Um, under the direction of Constantine's mother, Helena, who went to Jerusalem and there was very early on the belief that she had found the true cross. And that became the site of the Holy Sepulchre, which is still extant today. It's a pilgrimage site. And Jerusalem was remined to reclaim the roots of the Christian tradition. The fact that Christianity had been established as a city-centered faith played well because it accumulated worldly recognition under Constantine And you have to remember at the end of the day, Constantine was not so much a spiritual guy. He was a warrior. And like most warrior emperors, he looked at things through sort of the practical, tangible lens. Was Christianity useful? Well, it has all of these centers of power now with the rise of clergy and bishops throughout the empire. It is monotheistic in a way, or is it? 
something else, I don't know, three, one, whatever. But it's useful in that it has these established centers of power and it might be a potential way to unify my empire. Because my world is heavily centered on the city, centers of commerce, economic activity, it's from the cities that we can organize and we can protect cities much more easily than we can open land. We've got a useful bureaucratic system that we can leverage for power. And so I'm going to help you out, bishops. Bishops, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to open up the coffers. You're going to have money from the empire to help you build new churches, to really establish yourselves, and I want you to function as magistrates on behalf of the empire. Yep. I rub your back, you rub back, rub mine, and we're in good shape, all right? This is when we start to see the development of our modern form of the church. And it's adopted from Roman secular society. Christians were not keen to move into pagan temples because they were filled with who knows what, filth, spiritual rot, and all kinds of things that we don't want to pass on to our children. But the basilicas were places of secular gathering in the ancient empire. And they had a seat at the front for some kind of benefactor. They had a place for the people to gather. And they became the model then for what became the ordinary church in Roman society. Emerging from the Diocletian persecution was a conflict in many parts of Christianity between bishops and clergy who had fled or evaded the persecution and those who had remained steadfast even unto death. And the most vivid form of this conflict emerged in North Africa where the bishop Donatus was highly critical of the so-called traditors. These were Christians who had gained peace with the local governor, the local Roman governor, by handing over sacred scriptural books to him under the Diocletian persecutions. It's basically a deal to escape being put to death or otherwise sanctioned by the Roman authorities there. The traditors, after the Diocletian persecution was over, came back and said, we're here. And Donatus said, the hell you are. Some of us died standing up for what we thought was right. What are you doing here? And so what actually happened under Donatism is that in some parts of North Africa, there were parallel churches established, almost side by side, in local communities. The Donatists in one, the so-called traditors in the other. And this break became critical because... Guess who? Constantine saw this as a potential problem. Okay, you guys have a conflict, and I want this church to unify my empire, so we're going to resolve this. So he called the first council of the church. You can think of this as kind of a dry run for Nicaea. Didn't work very well, primarily because the Donatists didn't show up. 
kind of hard to have a council to resolve a conflict when one of the parties doesn't show up. But it became a pattern which Constantine would carry on in the subsequent decades whenever there was a conflict in the church. And of course, the other big conflict which became critical was that Arius, a priest in Alexandria, picked up Origen's approach and Platonic thinking, and he attempted to theologically resolve the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And he ultimately concluded that Jesus was created, not pre-existent, as John might say, and Arius quickly found himself on the outs with the authorities of the church in Egypt. So what did Arius do? Well, he went a little bit further afield to find support. And he found a bishop elsewhere in the empire to support his cause. And so the conflict was set. Arius and his approach. Jesus is created, not begotten, and all of those opposed to him. Ultimately, this came to the attention of Constantine. He said, okay, we're going to resolve this because it became a brutal conflict amongst the Christians who were now enjoying power in the empire. And so he called the Council of Nicaea. And it was Constantine himself who resolved the issue by siding with figures, bishops in particular, who believed that Jesus was of one substance with God the Father. Greek word was homoousios. Little did Constantine know this word had problems because it harkened back to some earlier heresies that were now being roundly condemned by the same people who were cheering him on. Let's get this resolved and let's say Jesus is more than just created, but is God himself. So Nicaea, in its first meeting, almost failed. And that became even more true after Constantine died and there was some churn in the imperial throne. There was an emperor named Julian the Apostate who came along in the middle of the 4th century and started to unwind a lot of the Christian support that Constantine had founded. Arius was ultimately pardoned as sympathy against Homoousius grew in the empire. But the work was picked up by Athanasius, who was a real tough guy. And Athanasius, who was Bishop of Alexandria, even though he found himself increasingly isolated, began to build alliances with other Trinitarian bishops in support of Nicaea, and they began to slowly turn the tide. And the ultimate turning happened later in the 4th century as a new emperor from the West came to power, Theodosius. And he gathered the bishops from across the empire again in Constantinople, and he said, you will resolve this, and you're going to resolve it now. And so they did. And the notion of homoousius, one substance or one being, as we have it in the creed, survived. And they even tackled place of the spirit, which is added at the end of the creed as we have it. Now, there are lots of questions remaining. This is Theodosius, by the way. Um, Did Nicaea really succeed or not? Arianism lasted well into the 6th, 7th, and maybe 8th centuries in 
Christianity. Forms of it persisted, particularly in the Far East, for a long time. But what Nicaea did accomplish was that it not only established a critical idea of who Jesus is in relationship to God the Father, but it began to establish the institutions that would carry the church forward. Bishops and their jurisdiction. How we settle disputes. What it means to gather as a council to establish things that we can call common. And how do we lift up that ideal that Irenaeus had first brought to the fore in his writings a century earlier, the notion of being Catholic, universal, and having a faith that we call ours and we hold it in common, no matter where we find ourselves in the wider church. I'm going to stop there for today. That's a lot to process. I told you it would be like a flyover, right? Do you have questions? Surely. I should have asked this earlier about the Gnostics. Isn't there evidence that some of their heresy has come to us as positive in regard to having direct relationship with God? Um, I don't have a quick answer to that question. Um, I would, say, I would say it's possible um, for two reasons. One of them is that you know, everything that Irenaeus wrote about the Gnostics was probably not true. Secondly, that sense of being close to God and that level of intimacy was not just taught by the Gnostics but was also found in what the traditions that we would now call orthodox at the time. So that sense of intimacy with God could be gained differently depending on which set of traditions your belief system was centered in. I don't know if that's helpful or not. I'm not very satisfied with that answer. But, but um, the Gnostics were not all bad. And I think you're right to point that out in your question. And what's very interesting to me, I always love doing this exercise with our youth who are engaging in confirmations. I have them write their own creed early on. And then when we get to the conversation about orthodoxy and heresy, we discover that all the old heresies are still with us because many of them talk about, you know, Jesus being made by God in their write-up. Arianism. Many of them talk about the soul going to God after death, which is a common belief system, right, even now. We're inheritors of the Greeks and their dualisms. That's a very kind of Gnostic notion, actually. So we have inherited all of this, but where we plant our flag in the formulas of Nicaea is meant to give us at least the bound of what we hold common together as a community. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but it gives you a kind of broad answer. 
Any other questions before we wrap up today? I threw a lot at you. I promise not to do this. Um, again, like I said, it's a flyover, right? It gives you a taste of how we got where we are. Next time you read the Nicene Creed, think about this history that led to it. It didn't come out of a vacuum. When we say we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you can hear that actually as an argument that is antithetical to the Gnostics. Our God is the one who created things, seen and unseen. And when we talk about Jesus, one being with the Father, we're hearing the arguments between the ancient Arians and what later became the group led by Athanasius and others, who said, no, Jesus really matters. Back to your question, Shirley, the orthodox argument is that for Jesus to be preexistent with God the Father is to say that God has come among us and is with us in the language of the Old Testament. And that in the Eucharist, where we believe in Anglicanism, Jesus is really present, we are encountering the Holy Divine, the one who created us. Um, The difference between that and some of the Gnostic beliefs is that that means that God is very much imminent with us, very much present. Gnosticism seems to be rooted in the Platonic ideal that God is out there somewhere and unassailable. But no, the orthodox argument is that God is here with us, among us, within us, in this very place. I'm going to let you go. (laughs) Simple question. Don't even need that. Did you create the PowerPoint? Yeah. Outstanding. It's just visuals, right? Just to, give, just to give some grounding to the conversation. Okay? Good. Next time we meet, which I think is on March the 10th, if memory serves, um, look for the announcement in the e-blast. Um, Dryden Little and I are going to co-present, and we're going to do a deep dive into the book of Job, one of the most ancient texts of Hebrew scripture. Why are we doing it? Well, for two reasons. One of them is Job asks a very basic question that I touched on briefly in my talk today. Why do people suffer? And more to the point, why do good people, like us, suffer, right? Right? But secondly, to illustrate what we do when we interpret Scripture. How do we interpret Scripture? What are the resources we bring to interpret Scripture? And how does Scripture speak to us as Christians, as distinct from other religious traditions? Make sense? Okay. Thank you all for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this podcast of A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, your host. We are a ministry of the Episcopal Church of Our Savior in Mill Valley, California. Find our podcast feed over at iTunes or in your favorite podcasting service. Give us a rating. Or go to our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org for more information about our spirituality, ministries, and service in the wider community. We wish you God's peace.
and we hope to greet you in person very soon.